Greetings. My name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peter. And this is episode 78 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 78, we are going to do a very quick recap of the district meet that was just this last weekend, district meet number one for PNW. And then Scott and I actually have a fairly extensive and very interesting list of sort of things well, sort of questions that came out of the meet and rule book clarifications that came out of the meet and some other sorts of rulings, discussions, a deity rule kind of thing, some theoretical progression of a quizzer philosophy and other sort of philosophical things that have nothing to do with the meet that we've been talking about, uh, you know, in Slack on and off for, I don't know, the last couple of weeks or so, sort of a whole bunch of stuff. And we'll just kind of see how far we can get through our stack of stuff, as it were. But with that said, let's kind of jump in and talk about the district meet number one stuff. Um, district meet number one for PNW, our first official meet of the year. We had a preseason meet uh, like a month and a week ago or six weeks ago or something like that. Um, but this was our first meet that was, uh, you know, actually official. It was a fairly short bracket round, fairly decent sized prelim round. And so we're counting prelims for uh, year to date averages for individuals, not for the brackets. Um, the quizzing was Friday and Saturday and a good show from, uh, everybody there. I was really impressed with the quality of quizzing that, uh, we experienced and, uh, Scott ran stats, uh, which was great. Um, and he even got a chance to quiz master one of the quizzes. So Scott, where, where were sort of your impressions or recollections from the meet? Let's see. I don't, I didn't have any um flashes of inspiration or anything that really stood out to me individual averages will look higher because we we cut them off after prelims all the brackets always bring down everybody's individual averages so among individuals we had kind of a clear five um and then an, a kind of also a clear seven that were ahead of everybody else but we did have quizzer get a perfect 90 over six prelims which is not that uncommon to for for one or two quizzers to have a 90 through prelims of normal pnw district meets but then to lose it in the brackets um there were 40 quizzers 12 teams teams average 10.9 um, team points per quiz which might be a little bit higher than average but i'm not sure I was pleased that the the spread from the highest scoring to the lowest scoring team was actually kind of small. Oftentimes, the team that is in last uh, never wins a quiz. Always takes usually always takes third place and averages something like two three points. But the team that actually was the last after prelims won a quiz, took second in another, and then third in the other four. But it still averaged four point seven points a quiz, which is about sixty or two correct questions. So it's nice to have even the lowest scoring team be getting stuff it keeps quizzes interesting i didn't I don't, I don't think anything really stood out in the quiz that i quiz mastered but it definitely feels i mean it's kind of like riding a bike because i haven't quiz mastered in a long time but in other senses i was like hopefully i'm not forgetting something super obvious like saying the type or something else yeah how long has it been or had it been since you had quiz mastered before i did i think Two or th I think I did two practice quizzes for internationals, but then before that, I don't, I don't know. So I might have this might have been the third quiz that I'd quiz mastered in over a year. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it does definitely take, and you didn't have a, you didn't have kind of a run up either. So like oftentimes I'll note if it's been a long time since I've quiz mastered, my first quiz is a little shaky and then I kind of, you know, get back into the uh, swing of things and get stronger, but you didn't have that opportunity. You had, you know, one and only one quiz then, right? Yep. I just rolled right into it. So there was, I think a toss up on question two and I announced the wrong two teams and only noticed it after I had read the question. And I was like, you know what? It may not have misled anybody, but I'm going to redo this one. <clears throat> so I did. I definitely had rusty airs like that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Any other sort of thoughts from it? I mean, from the vantage point of a statistician? Let's see. I do have very detailed data because I'm doing stats a new way this year that'll, that makes it easier for me to capture stuff like fouls, bonuses, third, fourth, fifth person bonus, and then the question number that a quizzer either quizzed out on or aired out on. I don't think anything really stood out. I mean, the quizzer that got a 90 was one of five quizzers to quiz out in every prelim and quizzed out very quickly. The average question number was 11.9 that they quizzed out on. There was a different quizzer who also quizzed out in every prelim, and the average question number they quizzed out on was 10.2, so faster. But So I kind of use that to see who is the dominant quizzer, and you really have to look at quiz-out percentage accuracy and that quiz, the question number that a quizzer quizzed out on together. Because if you quizzed out once on question four, but then you aired out all your other quizzes, that doesn't point to you being a very good and consistent overall quizzer. But if you are quizzing out consistently at a very high accuracy and also quizzing out fast, um, it is likely that you are um, in a different class compared to the other quizzers. Yeah, it could be. Although there is something to be said about using that as a strategy. There was one year uh, I had a a quizzer who was a, I, I believe he was the number one quizzer in the district, but if not, he was certainly in the top two or or something like that. Uh, and he, you know, he, he had complete command over the material, com uh, complete command over just about every quiz that we were in until we were in finals. Um, and even then, yeah, obviously he was still very strong in finals. It's just that he wasn't able to utterly and completely dominate the stage in finals every single time. And we would oftentimes do something along the lines of like, uh, sure, you know, quiz out in for the first four questions. And other times we would strategically say, you know, get questions one, two, and three, and then sit and don't quiz out until, you know, question 15 or something like that. Uh, and we would do that intentionally uh, because, you know, when you get to that level, that can be, um, I mean, it's a, it's a horribly effective mental weapon against the other team sometimes. It is, but I find the useful of, of that is inversely related to how easy it is to do that. <laughs> So yeah. if you're early in the prelims, it's if if you are have complete command like that, it's very easy to pick and choose, but it, you really don't gain a whole lot. But then where it is of most value is um, in say finals when it is the hardest to pick and choose. So um, if you if you have that much ability to do that even in the brackets, you can really make your opponent's lives tough. Yeah, for us it was it was not so much about. Um... It was not so much about winning a quiz because, you know, generally speaking, we would win all of the quizzes. It was really more around the idea of our, uh, I call them the second and third chairs, um, folks that are our second best and third best quizzer on the team, basically setting them up in a way to be able to uh, get questions and 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 to uh, out jump and out think, uh, not out think, but I don't know, out mental the, the other team. And there was some, some 
so it was less about the, you know, the number one quizzer and everybody else on the stage. It was really more about sort of setting a dynamic for our second and third and even fourth chairs to be able to get the maximum number of questions they could get. Interesting. Well, from my perspective, District Meet 1 was a lot of fun. We had a couple of sessions of quizzer breakout games with uh, Kim and Cuddy leading some stuff, and that was a lot of fun. It was great to fellowship with everybody again. Unfortunately, still not, you know, in person, still virtual, um, but we make the best of it as, as best we can. And of course, our next meet is not that far away. So, you know, uh, time's a wasting in terms of study. Well, so let's uh, let's kind of jump into some of the questions and rulebook clarifications and rulings and so forth that we have in our stack of stuff. And the first one, uh, actually, Scott, you want to set this one up? I think you generated this one, right? No. Mm, this okay. is from you. This is from me. All right. I don't remember this one. So let's see. I'll just read the notes and see if something jumps out at me. So multiple answer versus multiple answer chapter reference for Matthew 1421 versus 1535 and why. So I am not remembering this at all. 1421 reads the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. And 1538 reads the number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. So the so 1421 has about 5000 about 5 and 1538 says 4 and those are the only differences between both of those verses. I wonder if this might be something along the lines where it was like besides who like a, I I think this is where this may come into play. So if a, if you have a besides who and besides is a chapter key uh, word and you say besides who for chapter 14 versus chapter 15 the answer is the same and then the question becomes well can you turn it into a multiple answer question because besides can only ever get you women and children even though it happens in two places and if that is what I'm remembering the answer is no even though the answer will be the same, and it, but it, it occurs twice, uh, you still have to write it as a multiple answer chapter reference question. Yes. So I'm trying to... So the, as written, the note was um, how the answer being the same doesn't matter in terms of it being a reference question or not. And basically, the principle is that when deciding if a question should be an interrogative versus a chapter reference versus a chapter verse reference, you're only making that distinction based on the question portion and the answer doesn't matter at all. And then you make the single versus multiple answer designation based solely off of the answer portion. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I mean, it doesn't matter if, you know, like you could have two questions, you could have three questions from different places in the material that the question portion is the same and it's an interrogative one place, um, actually not, not an interrogative, but it's a chapter reference one place and a chapter verse reference another place. Right. Indeed. Well, let's see. Any other sort of ideas or something you want to bring up related to this particular bullet item? Let's see. You added one down it's... here at the bottom was said can also revisit the, is it bad if different rules, if different rooms rule differently on the exact same scenario? Um, you want to elaborate what you meant by that one? Yes, so this this deals with Matthew three ten and seven nineteen, which is both of those contain the phrase "every tree that does not." So because of that, any question that starts at "every tree that does not" cannot be an interrogative because it doesn't have um, 
a unique word or unique phrase in the first five words. But I, re I recall this specifically. The questions were written to be a multiple answer. So in one case, it's every tree that does not produce good fruit will be what? And in the other place, it's every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? And in both cases, the answer is cut down and thrown into the fire. But that's not um, pertinent to this. But because these questions are invalid as an interrogative, um, but then in the rest of the question, there is uniqueness, makes them invalid as any kind of a reference question. So you cannot write, like, you see this nice multiple answer phrase, and you cannot write it as really any question, any valid question type. Right. Yeah. It's a rare situation when this pops up, but it's important to note what makes certain interrogatives invalid. Like you, you can't write it as an interrogative if there isn't a keyword or two word, a, a single unique word or a two word key phrase within the first five. Like it has to be ultimately, or sorry, that's not even true. It has to be unique within the first five words. Um, so even if it's all five words getting to uniqueness, that has to be the case. Otherwise it can't be a, 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 a valid question in terms of being an interrogative. But here's some wrinkles. So the rule book when defining reference questions used to say similar material appearing either more than once in a chapter or more than once in the material. And so um, when I, this was roughly, well, it was eight years ago. These questions were written as reference multiple answers. Every tree that does not um, produce good fruit will be what, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is what. Because if you squint enough, they are similar material. And I ran into the situation, situation where, but you can see like how it's borderline tricky, and now that the rule book says to be a reference question, it has to be identical material. <laughs> it clears up a lot of this business. But I remember asking this and a quizzer gave me the question, every tree what? And I had to decide, like, do I think that every tree what is not a multiple answer? Because it was a valid chapter reference question. And so even though it was different than what I was asking, I had to say, do I think it is definitively not a multiple answer? And I ended up saying it was a vague enough question that I can't say it's not. So I accepted it as correct. And a very similar thing happened in a different room and was counted incorrect. And the, I believe there were challenges in both cases with the either the original ruling standing, but at the end of the day, it was a different ruling on very close to the same scenario. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, I, I come down on the side that says the more objective we can make it, the better. And, you know, I'm willing to agree that maybe we can't make everything uh, you know, perfectly objective in every case, but we should certainly be leaning in that direction whenever we can. Uh, if we accept subjectivity, we are setting up a scenario where two different rooms will rule differently in the exact same scenario for whatever that means, exact same scenario. Um, there will be different rulings where they ought to be the same ruling, right? And the reason I think that's important is in when you have different rulings for the same scenario, uh, it is demotivating for quizzers to, you know, memorize more, and that's countermission. Yep. And so I think you, you sum it up very well in that there was subjectivity in the rules, which to me is what leads to the scenarios being not the same, right? Um, even if it was the exact same question asked, the quizzer might have answered them in a different order and provided a slightly different question, and the wording of the challenges and rebuttals might have been different among the rooms, which is why I was not troubled at all that a different ruling was arrived at. But in a more objective world, there should be fewer and fewer of those circumstances. Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, 
is ever there going to be a scenario where there is a challenge and because one challenge is worded one way and one challenge is worded a different way, you're going to change your ruling one versus the other? Like, like to me, imagine, I mean, it's sort of a, a weird mental scenario here, but imagine that you're, you know, in a single timeline, you're in a, you're the quiz master in a quiz, a, an, a, an event takes place, uh, you make a ruling and then there's a challenge and, you know, at that point in time, just prior to the challenge being articulated, there is a fork in the space-time continuum. And on one fork, uh, one type of, of challenge is presented. And in the second fork, a different sort of challenge is presented. Now in, you know, fork A or universe A, and then the second one we'll call universe one, right? So in universe A, Scott A might be mentally uh, framed into thinking one sort of scenario versus another. And Scott one might be framed into a different sort of, you know, mental thinking or something like that. And that's totally understandable and reasonable, right? But ultimately at the end of both the sequence of universe A or universe one, Scott A or one should ultimately come to the same conclusion in terms of what to do. Does that make sense? Um, I understand what you have described, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Interesting. Not now, because I want to give you some time to think about it. And we also have a huge amount of other topics, but it would be interesting if you could provide an example of where Scott A and Scott one actually ruled differently and like how they would get there. If that makes sense. Yeah. I'd, just speaking in generalities, there are rulings where I'm like, boy, this could go either way. And I'm going to make a ruling. And if someone disagrees, hope that there is a challenge. And so in those cases, it might not take a ton for to sway me one way or the other. But in one of the cases, there might be a very well-worded challenge with poor rebuttals. And in the other case, it might be a really poorly worded challenge with really good rebuttals. And to me, that's often plenty to flip a decision or not on a ruling that was already on the borderline. That's very interesting. I would I would love it if you could set up a scenario and use me as the quiz master. Um, not now, but it, it, maybe we'll stick it in our show notes for some later point. Like come up with a couple of scenarios because I'm I'm struggling to see how it would actually work in practice. I mean, in principle, I get the notion, but in practice, I think ultimately the quiz master isn't swayed by the quality of the of the responses either in challenges or rebuttals but rather is it's almost like you're a judge in you know a court of appeals or something and you're if you're you're listening to the oral arguments from the lawyers but ultimately the quality of those oral arguments aren't what sway you right um it the the, the arguments are rather there to sort of open up mental thinking processes but not necessarily sway you one way uh, versus the other does that make sense sure but if you know in a world where there's not incontrovertible physical evidence towards something, then I think the strength of um, the appeals and the cross-examinations can definitely sway um, a decision. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I just which take is, a different... Which, which is why you see in, in um, legal cases that carry lots of weight, like, say, a murder case, um, oftentimes the jury's decision has to be unanimous, right? And I right. think it's kind of hinting at that if we're going to make a certain decision we want it to be unanimous because there are there are going to be cases all along this continuum of um everybody is convinced and no one is convinced and if it's somewhere in the middle and there are good or bad um lawyers working you know you might have you i i think you could see a lot of sway right 
but yeah. I will try to come up with an interesting scenario for you. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to, let's see, this was a, a, a marked question from this last meet. I think it was something, it was not something that either one of us marked. It was from oh, Matthew it was me. chapter. Oh, it was you? Yep. Those initials aren't you though. SP? Uh, no, it says not SP. The oh, From Matthew 624. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, so. Uh, so 624 one. Yeah, so Matthew 624, uh, it is um, a chapter reference question according to Matthew chapter 6, despise whom? The answer is the other. And we have a little notation in CBQZ here that says you need to ask for clarify other, which is clarify to master. And the marked comment is clarification of other, question mark, uh, which I'm assuming means is that required, should master be required uh, for, a, for a clarification of other. So, Scott, what do you think there? I think the question the Squiz Master is posing is, is it valid to ask for, a cl the, for the clarification of other? And I'm guessing because they don't, uh, well, because other is not one of the most common pronouns, the I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they, and then the plurals of those, or the, you know, other forms of those. And I think that other is definitely a pronoun. And so it's definitely valid to require a clarification of it. Yeah. And I've, I, I agree, but a, a few weeks ago I would have disagreed because I had a faulty definition of what in my head of what pronoun meant, but yeah, other is definitely a replacement of the word master. And so uh, it's a stand in for the word master. Although, well, maybe you could, you could make the argument that actually it is not a pronoun that it's actually an adjective, right? It is describing master. In a sense, it's an adjective that becomes a noun because the noun is not there. Sure, but um, I see what you're saying. Let me pull it up. So 624. So I think because of the way that it's phrased, despise the other, it is definitely more. Hmm, that's tough because it's implying master, of course, because it can be an adjective. I think if I mean, if the phrase said in despise the other master, then you wouldn't be asking for a clarification because you just, the answer would be the other master. Um, but in that case, I think it reads a lot more like an adjective than the way that it's phrased here. But I don't think that there's enough either way to say that uh, um, requiring the clarification of other is invalid. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly with master not being there, other is a, it's either a pronoun or a noun. Um, and I, I could see the argument being a noun. Um, so I don't know. I was originally fully in agreement with you. Now I am conflicted. I don't see any problem with it. And so again, if the, you know, and of course this goes back to uh, the question writer's prerogative. Um, the question writer has said that master should be required. I don't see any obvious reason why that should be considered invalid. And so, um, I, you know, I would ask it as written on the card uh, as a quiz master. And then of course the question is, is it best to require it or best not to require it? And I'm, I'm leaning more on the side of it's probably better to require it for more complete testing of the material. I agree, but I have a huge wrench to throw into it, which is the verse says no one can serve two masters, plural, but this is referring to one master can you require a clarification where the clarification is a word that does not exist? Oh, that's a good point. 
Um, I believe the rulebook is very explicit about this. I'm going to look it up here really quick. So if Quizzer has provided all the information in the answer except the identification of a pronoun present, which is part of the answer, the quizzer will ask the or the quizmaster will ask the quizzer to identify the specific pronoun. Can you identify he? Can you identify other? Um, although in PNW we don't use that phraseology, we say clarify uh, he or clarify other because I think it's more accurate than saying identify, and I don't like the idea of can you, but rather <laughs> make the make it a command rather than are you able to do something. Uh, but anyway, that's a phraseology for another topic. A pronoun may need to be identified only if the identification uh, identification antecedent is in context. Certainly, that's the case here. Hmm. This so is an, that is an interesting question. So, what would the antecedent be? Masters. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, the antecedent because absolutely the, the is word, masters. Exactly. So, the clarified antecedent master does not exist in context. That is true. Um, that is very true. I yeah, I think I think you could make the argument that there is not a black and white word that is a single an antecedent because. The antecedent, the other's antecedent is actually referencing more than just other. Interesting. Now I'm swayed the other way. Yeah, now I think you can't clarify it. But for a different reason. Yeah, but for an entirely different reason. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. All right, I told you, I told you these bullets weren't going to go quickly. <laughs> you, were, you were correct. All right, Matthew 5.31, is this a good test? So this references a question from Matthew 5.31. What has been said? And the answer, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And this one, Scott, did mark for edit. I did, and it's not something that I would typically mark for edit because this question is 100% valid. But now the question is, is it good? So... It's valid. Ben said is a key for a two-word uh, unique phrase. But do you – like it's super vague, which a, a question being – an interrogative being super vague is not grounds for it not being good necessarily. But do you think this is a good question and a good test? What has been said? What has been said from 531, it has been said, anyone who divorces, and then you have to clarify it. See – Mm, yeah. So I guess, I mean, it's a valid question. I think I would write it on the card slightly differently, right? I would write it as the answer is it and then clarify it. And then that produces the the actual rest of the, the verse there. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So if it's written that way rather than the way it is right now, which is exactly the same except without the it, um, I, I actually think it's a fine question. I And I think it actually covers the material really well because you're basically saying, you know, been said is a two-word key phrase, has been said uh, is a three-word, you know, key phrase. So, I mean, certainly it's valid. It's pretty straightforward. It leads right into the rest of the verse. And of course, the argument would be, what if a quizzer simply started with anyone who divorces and read the rest of the verse but did not say the word it would you consider it answered the 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 and i wouldn't if i was the question writer but as a quiz master with this question i would consider it answered right because that's what's on the card so i, I guess for me i think it's valid as is i think it's slightly better if we say it and then then clarify it yeah so i mean if there's an interrogative question and the answer is he clarified to Jesus, if the quizzer just says Jesus, I always count them right and don't make them say the he. Yeah, true. Um, 
Because, I mean, that's sort of the question. If I ask for it and they answer anyone who, to the end, I'm not going to say declarify your answer. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't require the it as a quiz master. But I think I think the question is better written if it's it that gets clarified. Yep. And I've changed it. <laughs> <laughs> Already? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's move on to some rulebook clarifications. There's a couple of things that came up from the meet, and I wanted to uh, get Scott's opinion on them. Uh, although I think I already did on at least one of these, but we'll see how things go. So the first one is coaches don't actually have to be in the room before a quiz starts. There isn't anything in the rule book that says a coach needs to be there. Um, generally speaking, there is a sort of a custom, certainly within PNW and probably other districts as well, uh, to be nice to coaches to say, well, we're not going to start until a coach is in the room, but it is technically not required. Well, in a normal in-person meet, this is fairly easy to take care of, but in a virtual meet, it's not a particularly easy thing to ensure all the time. Uh, in fact, can be very tricky to ensure, uh, you know, is the, is the coach just not participating? Do you know or not? Is the coach around? Are they intentionally not going to be there versus not, you know, it's, it's all these sorts of things sort of swirl around in virtual. So yeah, I think there is a custom to be nice and wait for coaches to arrive if their team is there first, but it is not, um, it is not a requirement uh, as far as the rule is con rule book is concerned. So Scott, do you have any sort of thoughts on this one? Nope. And um, I can't remember. Did I not even have this written into the local PNW rule book? Did it just not exist anywhere? I, do, I don't was, recall some, seeing it. Because PNW runs 20 minute time slots when we're doing physical quiz meets, it's, it's pretty rare that we're ahead of time by any amount of time. We're really just right on time or behind time. So this rarely comes up. But there was a case where a room was ahead by actually a lot, like 10 minutes or something. And all the teams were there, which also is rare. And then they just started. And some of the coaches were not there and were not happy about it. So we made the rule, and apparently didn't write it down anywhere, where if you are starting earlier than the scheduled time, you must um, – the coaches I'm must sure be – the coaches must be present or – I would, I would sometimes ask the teams, like, do you want me to wait for your coach? And then it, it usually was 50-50 whether or not they wanted me to wait or not. But it is pretty rare to happen, right, for a team to be there but a coach not or earlier than the scheduled time for a quiz. Yeah, it is pretty rare. It is pretty rare. Yeah, I'm not sure what to do about this one. I mean, I could see it going a lot of different ways. I guess for me, I would want to turn it into a quizzers could ask the quiz master to delay because their coach isn't there but burdening the quiz master especially in virtual burdening the quiz master with trying to ensure that anybody that wanted to be there uh was there is um uh i don't know i'd have to think about that but i'm not a big fan i like the idea of changing the default but sometimes you may have less experienced quizzers who are more timid to speak up and i wouldn't want to put it on them if they really do want their coach to be there but they're not yet comfortable saying like to a, an experienced quiz master, please wait, you know? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. 
Well, and then that moves us to something else that is a a, a missing from the rule book. Uh, and I don't mean missing in a bad way, but I mean, it just, it doesn't exist in the rule book, at least currently. And that is with recordings and we, audio recordings. And we talked about this a little bit before. Uh, I Some podcast, maybe several months, if not a year, actually, maybe it was more than a year ago. I forget. It, it's been a while. But there's no rule about the officials sharing their voice recordings with anybody, uh, uh, like playing the audio publicly versus, say, over headphones or something like that. I think generally there is a culture or tradition of if you are, you know, have a little tape recorder or something hitting rewind and hitting play and everybody can listen in. And obviously it's close. The speaker is closest to the quiz master and answer judge, but uh, other people are not prohibited. Like they, they don't say, you know, plug your ears while we listen. Of course, there's, there's no reason for that to exist. But at the same time, there is no rule that the officials must share shared their voice recordings. And so in a scenario where a quiz master and or answer judge have determined that it is uh, better for them to be able to hear it over headphones versus on a speaker system for whatever reason, let's say they can hear it better over headphones, uh, they're perfectly free to do that. Um, and then if you take that as sort of the baseline for in-person and move that idea into virtual quizzing, uh, at the moment, I don't think anybody's keeping recordings in virtual quizzing, but if we were to keep recordings, I'm not even sure a, an optional group playback would be possible. Um, certainly, I mean, you could keep a local recording and then play it back, but then having that run through your audio out could be, could be troublesome, right? It could be. Hmm. Do you want me to go over general thoughts? Yeah, go over general thoughts. I think our main finding from a long time podcast ago was that recordings will probably provide some tiny advantage to participants in a room, um, and or at least it would make things some amount of not equal between rooms. And so all quiz rooms should either have recordings or all quiz rooms should not have recordings. Uh, but that's not really part of what we're discussing here. I think... I, I always keep my listening to a recording private, and that's driven by two things, and you can tell me how valid you think these reasons are. But the first one was, I think this was in my first uh, meet that I quiz mastered, first district meet. I had to listen to a recording, and um, as you know, the audience sits all over the place, but um, often the coaches sit very close to the officials' table. And I was listening to the recording, and at the critical point in the recording, as soon as it played, a coach right behind me goes, oh, they said it just out loud to the entire room. And I was kind of taken aback and now I would have I would have fouled the entire team for something mm, like that. Right. Mm. Um but that kind of I was like, well, the audience doesn't get to like like litig litigate this, right? <laughs> like I'm deciding from the recording. Um but then my second one was from internationals. There was um many many cases of the same quizmaster would um would need to listen to a recording for one reason or another. And it was like a handheld physical, like cassette, mini cassette tape that you would rewind. And the process of rewinding and finding where they were and then listening it was excruciating. It would take minutes of like, oh, we went three questions too far back. Oh, we went too far forward. Oh, we went like one second back. Oh, we went, oh, we went four questions back. And it was just like the, like either a terrible UI or just terrible use of the tech. And it was just, so terrible. So because of that, I was like, okay, I never, I'm taking, I'm taking my recording always in a 
piece of software where I can see the um, audio waveforms to at least help in the timestamps so I know how far to go back. But I'm also not going to subject everyone to this pain, and I'm going to keep it private. And I think it's definitely on the Quizmaster to have a level of trust where no one thinks that you're not going to make the ruling based off of what you heard, right? But those were those two experiences were why I keep it private. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and it also comes down to at the end of the day, and I think we talked about this a year and a half ago or whenever it was that we last talked about this idea, but ultimately what matters in an in-person meet and what matters in a virtual meet is that the quiz master here, I mean, it's all based on what the quiz master and answer judge hear, right? It doesn't matter if a coach hears it. It doesn't matter if, you know, a quizzer right next to the quizzer who is answering said, oh, but I heard them say that word, right? And it's like, well, if the quiz master and answer judge, if the answer judge is there, uh, if they don't hear it, it doesn't exist. Or if they hear something different, uh, it doesn't exist, right? And so there are scenarios where... um you know, there are scenarios where you could have a recording and the quizzer says something uh, that the quiz master and answer judge hear one way and a coach hears a different way. And you can play back the audio recording and both sides can be absolutely confident that they're hearing it, you know, in, you know, the quiz master and answer judge hear it one way and the coach hears it a different way, right? I mean, there's scenarios, I mean, there's these little internet memes that happen from time to time where they're like, listen to this little, you know, two second, three second audio passage. What word is this person saying? And everybody's like, you know, they're saying blue. No, they're saying green, you know, stuff like that. Of course, they're not saying blue or green, but there were, and, and we hear those things over and over again. And it's sort of like, well, which word are they saying? And people can honestly hear it both ways, right? So this is not to say that, you know, the coach is doing anything wrong, and it's not to say that the answer judge and or quiz master are doing anything wrong, but rather they're both honestly listening to the recording, and they're both coming away with a different interpretation of what the recording is. Um, I don't like the fact that something so objective as a recording could be heard differently, but it is entirely possible. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is that the quiz master and if there's an answer judge, the answer judge too, it only matters that they heard it and their interpretation of what they heard. And they're trying to be as unbiased and as fair as possible, hopefully. Um, but that's the only thing that matters. And so in that way, yeah, like you almost don't want to have it be out there in the universe so that there could be a thing of, well, I'm disagreeing with your subjective hearing of the, or the interpretation of what you're hearing kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't like that that's the case, but anyway, it is part of the case, but moving into virtual uh, and sort of expanding this from just audio recordings, technology can get in the way uh, of quizzing. And certainly this is true in person at in-person meets as well, right? If you've got you know, a, a tech setup with your jump lights, uh, whether they're pads or benches or whatever. And it just so happens that there's some little fluke in the technology where seat three is just a, you know, an eighth of a second behind seat two or something like that. That's really lame and it's not fair and it's not right, but there isn't really anything that you can do about it if you can't reliably test out that there is a quarter second delay of seat three versus seat two or something like that. And it's it's lame uh, and I don't like it because it's not fair, but there really just isn't any 
there isn't any way to deal with that unless you can, again, like I said, reliably prove that it's it's happening. In virtual, there are situations where, and this happened at the meet, um, there were a couple of quizzers who were quizzing in my room and, uh, well, Zoom room, and uh, they had problems with their mics. There were situations where they had low mic volume and it was really difficult for me to hear. Like I could hear, you know, 90 five percent of everybody just fine but these particular quizzers were always incredibly faint and it was like i i just it was very hard for me to hear them there was another time where one quizzer was answering uh a fairly long uh quote finish question and the there was a clearly obvious uh bandwidth hiccup that happened where when this quizzer was answering she got to a couple of words there was a kind of that you know sort of sound where the bandwidth gets really 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 uh tight for you know half a second and then it kind of caught up and continued and you know i didn't hear her say the words and i'm pretty sure i, I in the moment i was pretty sure she, she said the words but i didn't actually hear her say the words so i had to say again and she may have interpreted that she didn't say it correctly, right? And uh, as she was going through again, and that's unfair. And that's not because, you know, she experienced a bandwidth problem. Other quizzers did not experience a bandwidth, bandwidth problem. That's not fair. I don't like the fact that it's not fair. But unfortunately, despite the fact that it's really harsh, I just, I don't know that there's anything else that we can do, which is sort of a, you know, another indication or another sort of big warning to everybody, like, please test your equipment before every meet. Certainly at an in-person meet, we're testing the lights all the time. But when you're talking about, you know, remote meets, uh, virtual meets, uh, make sure you're testing your network connectivity, your, your laptop, whatever device it is, desktop, test your microphone, uh, you know, test with somebody who's remote, who's not there. Coaches can help, but other officials and other quizzers can do that as well. Uh, because, you know, if, if it, if it, if it's, if we encounter a technical problem, there's there's very little that we can do in the moment. It reminds me of a case that I would run up against when I was a quiz master, which would be a quizzer's answering a keeper's question, so a quote or a finish the verse with a lot of material, and they are just running along through the verse. Um, let's say they're speaking with a good volume and at a good cadence, but there are tiny words like a, uh, where a quizzer might be going pretty quickly, and I will have a question whether or not I heard the word uh or something like that. And the cadence at which the quizzer was speaking definitely felt like there was a beat or a syllable where that uh should be. So it wasn't like they missed a word, right? If you're reading along in the material and the quizzer misses the word, it's very jarring, right? But I, there are times where I've questioned whether or not I've heard a word. And it, any thoughts on a scenario like that, Griffin? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I think you have to hear the word. You don't have to hear it as a distinguished syllable in and of itself. I mean, you can slur words together and as a quizzer, and, and I would consider that hearing the word. But I have to be pretty confident I heard the word to be able to count you correct. And yeah, like a, uh, the, very short words in a two-word long you know, a two verse, sorry, not word, two verse long quote that's going by lickety split in 10 seconds. 
uh, it's very easy to miss out on the, some of those things. So, you know, quizzers, if you can slow down, um, in this last virtual meet, there were there, I don't think there was really anybody who was quoting what I would say too quickly in the sense of like, you know, consistently getting done in 10 seconds when you have 30 seconds and doing, doing the quoting so quickly that, you know, it was difficult to keep up with you. Um, so in that way, you know, kudos, but there are times where, you know, if you want to fit all two verses in 30 seconds, you have to be quoting really fast. And it's like, as a quiz master, I think you, you, you do need to hear the, uh, I agree. So our next one is a ruling that I ran across from Matthew 624. It's a multiple answer question. The question is, you cannot serve whom? With the answer being both God and money. And the quizzer jumped and said, you cannot serve two masters. And then paused and very quickly said, you cannot serve both God and money. And how would you rule, Griffin? So I remember this one because I was looking this up as I was writing up the show notes. Let me see if I can remember. Mm, I would count them correct because they did not provide incorrect information. In effect, they are they are clarifying the two masters, I think. Gotcha. And so I think it just it made me as I was looking at this, I was like, I um I initially ruled them incorrect and there was, I, I ruled them incorrect and there was no challenge, but after the fact I I think that they are fine. But it led me to question like I mean incorrect information is not determined, right? So, I mean, the answer is you cannot serve both God and money. And if they mess up either of those um nouns that are being asked for, they're incorrect, right? If they said you cannot serve Peter and idols or something, you know? Um, they would be incorrect immediately. And so just the case that two masters both exists in context and, I mean, it has to be the case that two masters is like a more general reference to God and money, right? Is the reason yeah. that they're not incorrect. Or synonyms. If I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where you'd have a multiple answer where both of the, where you could say A and B and X and Y and X is a synonym of A and Y is a synonym of B. But if there could be a scenario like that, I'd, I'd consider that to be okay as well. And so I was kind of working my mind into a twist of saying, like, should they be fine just because something exists elsewhere in the material that is not part of this question and answer? You know, because well, if, I, I don't if know if the that it existing. No. I don't think it, it existing in context matters. Um, I, I, that sounds bizarre I, I, and, and very non-objective to me. But imagine if two masters was not in context, but it existed as a concept, let's say, in Luke, but not in Matthew. Um, and so it's completely not part of the Matthew quizzing at all. So it's not like it can put you in a different context of Matthew, right? Um, but yet somehow we knew absolutely for certain that both God and money that essentially God and money are the two masters, right? And somebody said two masters, I would not count them incorrect because they're using a synonym of God and money. Now I would require them to get to God and money, uh, but uh, I wouldn't count them incorrect necessarily. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I think you've, you and other people have helped crystallize this in my head of why it's not incorrect information, right? It's that, um, two masters is referring to God and money. So yeah. Right. Right. I, 
I just second guessed myself and I was like, okay, I, what principles am I going back to? Um, and it was tough for me in the moment. Yeah. But I mean, that's honestly, that's the, the best way to start looking at, not start. I think that's the best way to evaluate a lot of these sort of, amb, not ambiguous, but difficult rulings is to go back to principles to say like, like instead of in the moment, uh, you know, does this make sense uh, given the full context of the situation, but to rather to say like, what are the first principles that I'm going to be working from to derive an answer? And, and yeah, so I think the way you handle it was appropriate. Do you want to introduce this in the next one or should I? Uh, let's see. I can try this. So this next one is, is, uh, is some deity rule scenarios. And this comes from I think some conversations that Scott and I were having possibly with Jeremy, possibly with Alan as well. I'm not really sure exactly the context of where these were coming from, but, um, and I don't even remember exactly where the origin point for this was. So let's kind of start with, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 20, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you, right? So what if the quizzer says not be speaking? Uh, you speaking, but your father speaking through you, are they wrong per the deity rule or can they correct the answer? Yes. So, um, yes. If the, So the text says the spirit of your father. And so if the quizzer says your father, then I think they're incorrect at that point because they have picked a different person of the deity or of the Trinity than you need. And if you pick a wrong deity, then you are wrong immediately. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it is unfortunate because, you know, spirit of your father versus father, uh, it's, it's very close. And I, I could see a lot of people getting very confused. Why am I immediately wrong? But yeah, spirit of your father refers to the Holy spirit. And because of the DD rule, it, it is immediately incorrect information. So I posed a hypothetical, which was what if the material had, what, so just let's say a material says the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ was there. And the quizzer says our Lord Jesus Christ was there. Um, are, are they wrong? I believe they have to be wrong. Um, I mean, it, it is, it is factually incorrect information. Um, you know, it's the, the God and father uh, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ was there. Uh, not the Lord Jesus Christ being there. So it's, it's, uh, it's incorrect information, number one. And then number two, it is, uh, by the deity rule, uh, even more incorrect if there, if there is such a thing. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing, but I think, I think they're incorrect even regardless of the deity rule. Uh, but with the deity rule, they're clearly incorrect because we are considering, uh, God the Father and God the Son as two different things in terms of, of, uh, answers. Yep. And I remember I was trying to be intentionally difficult with, with Jeremy. And I said, um, so I, I, I said, so a quizzer can quote material that is in context, quote it word perfectly, and it is contiguous to the required question and answer, and they can be incorrect. And he said, yep. yes, because, because of this specific scenario where, because they, because of where they start, they're picking a subset of the description of a name that then refers to a different name. Yeah. I mean, and it is a little on the harsh side of things in terms of the harsh, not harsh sliding scale, but it is what it is. And I think it needs to be harsh um, because to shift it in the other direction just opens Pandora's box. Yes. Now, Jeremy did clarify. He said, instead of saying 
our Lord Jesus Christ was there. The quizzer just decided to start the of and said of our Lord Jesus Christ was there. Then at that point, they would not be necessarily incorrect because they would not have specified a person of the deity. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I complete. I completely agree. Uh, I mean, it's kind of clever, and I don't think that scenario would ever happen. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if it did, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'd agree. And so again, going back to my difficult point where I said, can a quizzer say word perfect information be counted incorrect? And I thought Jeremy's quote was really good, which was, there are so many contextual issues, both in the text itself and in the way the quizzer answers the question. But I think there's a clear distinction between giving additional information from the context that I'm not asking about versus directly answering my question with omitted information, which is this scenario, right? So you have omitted information by where you started and that has caused you to refer to it, um, um, a different person of the deity. And that's like why you're wrong. Right, right, right. Well, Let's so see. then can a quizzer be counted incorrect or out of context when saying information unrelated to the question being asked? Yes. So like, um, let, what's a good verse? Um, let's, let's go to the Beatitudes, right? Matthew, not the Beatitudes, Matthew 6, the prayer. Matthew 6, 9, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And let's say the interrogative is, hallowed be what? And the quizzer gets up and says, this then is how you should walk, or something incorrect like that, or the text doesn't say that. Can you count them incorrect for saying something incorrect that is not part of your question and answer? Interesting. That's an interesting way to phrase it. I think it would be, I think it's better to flip it around the other way. Can you, can you allow them to continue is probably how I'd want to, because I, I mean, the quiz masters want the quizzers to get the questions correct, right? We're all rooting yes. for you. Like, like we, we're, 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 you know, I, there was a particular chapter verse reference where the, uh, the quizzer, this last meet, uh, I think it was on Saturday, the, the quizzer provided a question that was not what I had on the card. And I had to go back to the rule book and I was, you know, I probably spent a couple of minutes parsing the rule book and the question that I had on my card, trying to figure out a way to make it possible for me to count them correct. And I couldn't get there. Right. And it would have been easy for me to just say, no, it's, it's not, but I was, I mean, I was actively looking for a way to count them correct. And that's sort of my mentality in, you know, pretty much every time I'm quiz mastering, I'm looking for an opportunity to count the quizzer correct. Uh, so, you know, in this, in this case is like, can I count you correct? If you say walk instead of pray, I think I can because I'm not asking for that information. I'm I'm asking for hallowed be what, right? Um, and so if you provide me incorrectly quoted information uh, prior to getting to the hallowed be your name part, I think I still can count you correct. Yeah, because you have to be not incorrect and that there is no definition limiting not incorrect to the scope of the question and the answer. Sure. Sure, I, I agreed, but but how you should pray versus how you should walk isn't isn't not it, that is neither correct nor correct relative to hallowed be what relative to hallowed be what. But I don't think that that's a distinction that you get to make. Well, sure, I think I think absolutely right because the rule book is is the rule book is basically saying you know you cannot provide an incorrect answer, right? But how you should walk versus how you should pray is not an incorrect answer. Like it's, it's, it's an incorrect, it's an incorrect 
response to a different question, but it is not an incorrect response to the hallowed be what, right? The what is the, the, the what being replaced by the answer is like, that's the, that's the answer, right? If you say other things around that particular thing that you're saying, that doesn't necessarily make you incorrect unless that thing is incorrect for the hallowed be, right? So if I see hallowed be what, and somebody jumps and says, oh, I can't remember this one. I was just, I well, wait, maybe, wait a minute. Oh yeah, hallowed be your name, right? I'm not going to count them incorrect because even though what they said, like what they said is not wrong information relative to hallowed be. So... This is very interesting. I think the rule book does not specify. It just says, um, where is it now? And give me a page number so I can look it up too. It is 11.3. It says only the first answer of the quizzer will be considered. However, and by the way, um, I have determined for myself that like any information a quizzer gives me can be grounds for them being counted correct. So I also think that any information the quizzer gives me can be grounds for counting them incorrect. And I don't think there is any definition of what constitutes an answer. And so I don't think, so I never draw a distinction between like the quizzer giving me an answer or not giving me an answer because I don't know what that is. Right, right. So, and I, I tend to agree with that, like, like from the perspective of what I was saying, like, is the quizzer when they're saying, I can't remember, wait, I just read this. Are they providing me meta information that they really shouldn't provide me at all? And, you know, are they just thinking out loud or is this them actually providing me an answer? And and I agree the quiz master should not make that interpretation, uh, but r should rather just say is is what they're saying going to be incorrect or correct. Right. So like if they say hallowed be uh, heaven. Right. Uh and they, heaven is a word that happens to be in context. In fact, it's right before hallowed, right? But if they were to say like, oh, I don't remember heaven. Oh, your name. Like, I kind of have to count them incorrect, right? Um, versus correct. Sure. So, I mean, that's another thing that Jeremy did mention in our conversation, which was the quizzer often will just off the cuff say words that we that are you're going to hate all of what I'm about to say, but that are <laughs> obvious that they're just like, they're just like trying to remember something. So they're like, huh, let me think, let me think, let me think, huh, I'm not sure. Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? And we just never consider that to be grounds for in or out of context or correct or incorrect. Um, but it's definitely not in the rule book and definitely not written down anywhere. It could not be more subjective and tribal, but ignoring that the rule book does say, if the information given by the quizzer is within the context of the material and is not incorrect, they can keep answering. And the not incorrect is does not make reference to the desired answer scope. And so I think if a quizzer says something that is incorrect and it is not within the desired answer scope, I think it's definitely grounds for them being called incorrect. See, interesting. I would say that the rule book is ambiguous on this, and therefore I'm going to actually take the entirely opposite interpretation of it. I just wouldn't do that because I can't know where the quizzer is answering from, from or is intending to answer from or is intending to answer my question or not. And so, you know, like they could theoretically misquote material that is not part of my answer scope, but somehow answer my question correctly. That's true. Right. And, and so right. And, and I'm not making the determination 
as to their intent. Like there are times where a quizzer definitely has no idea what they're answering. It happens to say content that I'm like, you had no idea and have not memorized this, but I have to count you correct. That is true. <laughs> that has happened to me too. Yeah. So I think it's inconsistent to then just choose information that I'm not going to use as grounds for being incorrect. Well, see, I guess I, I guess I, I'm taking the opposite side of that one because like to me, if they, to what degree do I say they are quoting something correct or incorrect, right? Um, if, if there is something in verse nine, let's say this then is how you should pray while you are walking or something. I don't know. This is a terrible example. Uh, and then there's the blah, 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 how it would be your what, right? Um, and they then say something about walking or praying uh, but it is they invert those two things or something while they're starting to quote through nine, but they get our father in heaven, hallowed be your name exactly right. I guess I just can't count them incorrect, right? They're not providing me incorrect and they're not providing me information that is incorrect to the answer that, that I'm asking for, right? They're providing me other information. And if that other information happens to be quoted incorrectly, but it's not wrong, information, right? It is not incorrect relative to the question that I'm asking, right? And again, I'm inferring that that something that's not part of the rule book, right? It, the rule book does not say limited to the context of, or not the context, that's an o way overloaded word. Um, the rule book does not say the, the added definition of what I'm throwing in there. And I, I, I absolutely agreeing that the rule book is ambiguous there, but in the event of a rule book ambiguity, I'm looking for a way to count the quizzer correct, not looking for a way to count them incorrect. Sure. I'm just not comfortable making the, making the judgment of what, um, a quizzer is saying if it is relative to the answer or not relative to the answer. Sure. But I mean, in this case, you, you have to anyway, right? Because like, if they say this then is how you should pray, you're not going to count. Let, let's say you said, hallowed be what? And somebody jumps and they say, this then is how you should pray. And then they stop for a few seconds. You're not going to count them incorrect because you know, they haven't gotten to the answer yet. They have not provided you anything that is wrong relative to hallowed be what? Now, um, because... If, and, and if they were to, if I, if they were to jump and you say, how would be what they jump and they say this then, and then they stop. Well, this then could be considered an answer to, to what, but you're not going to count them incorrect yet. Um, because they haven't gotten to the part of the answer. Sure. But I think that that's, so I'm looking at the types of material that they're giving me. Right. And that's, so I think you are right that I'm making some determination of what are they answering? Cause if a verse says, um, John was doing many miracles by the Jordan and Peter was there and I asked who was there and the quizzer gets up and says, John and pauses. Well, I can't like a suit, like make a determination of whether they're just starting to quote the verse and pausing or trying to answer my interrogative question. And so I would call them incorrect at that point for giving incorrect information because right, I, I told and that determination. And in that, in that way, I completely agree with you. Right. But clearly what we're talking about here is them providing not incorrect information to my question, right? In the example you're, 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 you're citing there, the person is, the quizzer is providing incor an incorrect answer to the question that you're asking. Sure. But I've already established that I've counted quizzers right for giving me information that I know was not relative to the answer at all. So if I've done that, I have to be able to count them incorrect for information that is not relative to the answer at all. 
Mm, yeah, but I just I don't I don't know that it follows all the way to this. Um, I mean, again, this kind of goes back to I think the rulebook is a little bit on the ambiguous side here, and so it's a question of how do we want to respond to that ambiguity? Exactly but, right, because um, because there are many like people have asked, what do you do if a quizzer quotes material from a different year? You know, and I just treat that as out of context, right? Because mm -hmm. I treat context as not in this context and not elsewhere in this year's material, right? Mm -hmm. And so right. there are there, that covers a lot of skills already. So it's rare for a quizzer to be saying incorrect information that is in context. Anyway, anyway that is both in context and not related in any way to my desired answer. Right, right. Well, we are a little bit over time, but I mean, do we want to try to hit theoretical theoretical progression and then close up? Did you want to skip over the spectrum, which you think uh, there is no spectrum? Yeah, why don't you hit that? I mean, I don't think there is a spectrum. I think you think there is a spectrum. And it just might be definitions, but I think there is a spectrum yeah. for correct, incorrect, and out of context, right? So take Genesis 1.1. A quizzer can say it word perfect in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is as correct as you can get. They can also say like on the future... Um, the Holy Spirit destroyed things, and that could not be more incorrect, right? Um, right. But I think they can be all manners of in the middle, and as you get closer and closer to whatever middle is, it makes it harder and harder to rule on for um, the quiz master. So they could say, like, in the early times, or, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, or in the beginning, God created the firmament and the earth. Um, and all of these, like, variants... Um, where to me it's it's a just a large spectrum, and I might be, and it's at the middle of that spectrum where my rulings are more easily swayed by the quality of a challenge or a rebuttal. And I think this spectrum applies to correct to um, incorrect, and it also applies to in and out of context. Okay, so I agree with you that there is a spectrum from the perspective of the answer in terms of it being. How, how close is it to the word perfect, you know, scripture, right? Um, but I think ultimately, and I mean, there's a, essentially imagine you have input into a quizzer's, imagine a quiz master is a program and it has input and it has output, right? And the input is a gradient and the output is a Boolean, right? I think that's what's going on here, right? And so is there a spectrum of input? Absolutely, yes. Is there a spectrum of output? Absolutely, no. There there must be only a Boolean. You're, you're correct or you're incorrect, right? I mean, and I guess there's another one. You're, you're, you're not incorrect yet and you still have time. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the 30 seconds, you are either correct or you're incorrect. There is no third option and it must be Boolean, right? And so essentially sure. what the quiz master is doing is taking this spectrum and con using the rule book to convert it into a, a boolean right you're you're like a filter pass function or something like that right um yep. and so like yes i agree where when you have something that's very 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 gray and the rule book is vague the quiz master ultimately can get into a situation where they're like er um i'm not really sure <laughs> where to go with this like i does not compute i don't i i, I have a seg fault i don't have enough information to to reliably uh, you know consistently come up with it 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 needs to be either correct or incorrect but ultimately it is the job of the quiz master to consistently come up with a correct or incorrect right so i guess I see where you're coming from and I agree with you. There is a spectrum of input, but that 
doesn't mean that we should be okay with that from as a spectrum of output. Well, I mean, it's not a spectrum of output because you have to pick one or the other. And just because sure. you're you're at the middle of the spectrum, sometimes quizzers, uh, quiz masters will decide to throw it out because they can't decide. And I don't think you should do that. But I just think I think the spectrum is very useful to consider when like considering challenges and rebuttals, when considering um, is there a way that the rulebook is written that contributes more to um, density at the middle of this spectrum that we don't want, right? We would love the distribution of the spectrum to be very much towards the tails as defined by the rulebook. Um, right. So, so I think there are many useful applications of it. I mean, you're right. At the end of the day, you have to pick one of the two that are just completely Boolean. Right. Okay. Well, so theoretical progression of a quizzer. So this is an idea. I, I have no idea if this is true or not. Um, so, but it's something that, that I've floated with Scott and I think a couple other folks, and I'm kind of throwing this out there as just sort of a philosophical thing to consider. This is both for quizzers and for coaches, but I think, well, I guess I was going to say mostly for quizzers, but really it's, it's not mostly for quizzers. I think it's for both quizzers and coaches, but imagine you have a quizzer who is currently quizzing on average, right? Every quiz is different, but let's say they typically quiz three and O like they get three correct questions and they get zero incorrect questions. And actually that's not per quiz. That's like, let's say per meet, let's say in a given meet, they get three correct questions and they get zero incorrect questions. Okay. So that's quizzer A, right? And then you have quizzer B who gets eight correct questions and three incorrect questions, right? So Clearly, quizzer B is a stronger quizzer, stronger slash better, whatever, quizzer than A. And if you are a quizzer who is a quizzer A, or if you are a coach who has a quizzer A, you want to get them to be uh, a B quizzer, right? You want to move them from being an A quizzer to a B quizzer, right? And you can do that, you know, via more study, more practice, whatever it happens to be, more encouragement, whatever, right? Um, but but it would be, if you happen to be a 3-0 quizzer, if you were to move to being an 8-3 quizzer, you would be like, this is good. <laughs> this is this is a, a net positive, right? Uh, uh, the, obviously, being an 8-0 quizzer is even better than an 8-3 quizzer, but an 8-3 quizzer is better than a 3-0 quizzer, you know, in terms of like your contribution and all that kind of stuff. Well, how you get from A to B, there might be a number of different paths uh, to get from A to B. But let's say one of one pathway to get from A to B is a theoretical course, call it like a A, B or quizzer or a, or an A prime, I guess. And an A prime is a quizzer that is eight and 16, right? They're getting in a given meet, they're getting eight questions correct, but they're erring 16 times, right? And of course, don't try to do the math here because these, the math may not actually be possible. And it just, I, I'm just think, thinking of this from a philosophical perspective, right? Lots of hand-waving. Now, imagine, let's call it A prime. Uh, a prime is an 816 quizzer, right? So if you are an A quizzer, is becoming, even for a very brief period of time, where very brief can be half a quiz, ergo you can't really ever get to an 816 uh, outcome, but at least in those 10 questions, you are theoretically operating at an 816 level. Uh, is it a necessary step for an A quizzer to become an A prime quizzer before they become a B quizzer? Um, and actually, let's stop there. I'm going to have a series of questions. So the first one is, Scott, from your perspective, is A prime a necessary step for an A to become a B? I don't think so. Um... 
thinking about quizzer development, um, I think it's easy to look at the quizzer who's getting three correct and zero incorrect and say, like, you're at 100% accuracy. You should win more jumps. Um, and I think that's oversimplistic because winning more jumps definitely does not mean that they can maintain that accuracy. Um, but I definitely think a quizzer, the type of quizzers that really advance have to have some minimum accuracy to start, but also some minimum number of jumps won. And neither of those have to be crazy. Um, but I think it's for the type of quizzer that's either getting two right and zero wrong or three right and zero wrong a meet or eight right and 16 wrong a meet. I think it's very rare for either of those um, to become like quizzers that average above a 60. Okay. So if you had a quizzer, let's say you're a coach and you had a quizzer who was an A quizzer, a three and O quizzer for, you know, half a season or something like that. And then they studied more. And then, and, and part of the, part of the, part of the reason they were sort of locked in as into the three and O universe is maybe just sort of an apprehension about, uh, about jumping. And let's say they get to a point where towards the end of the season, they're actually quizzing as an A prime quizzer. They're quizzing as an eight sixteen quizzer. As a coach, you might be thinking, well, I kind of want them to go back to three and O because they're kind of hurting the team with all these, you know, the 16 errors, right? But it might be that a prime is a step. It's not, I agree. It's not a, a required step. I don't think it's a necessary step to get to a, a B, right? But I think for some quizzers, it can be a stage of development that they have to go through, hopefully very short, to get to 8.3. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that that could be the case because the type of quizzer who does know the material very well but is not winning a lot of jumps out of timidity is a pretty common profile, right? But they're usually they're usually not getting three right a meet. Like, I remember there was a quizzer who would quiz out often without air in every prelim and then would win almost no jumps in semifinals. And so it end the meet with like a 40 average, which, you know, ends up being 20th or something or 25th. And you think, ah, oh, that's not super impressive. But to me, that sort of quizzer can advance very, very quickly because it's more out of timidity of jumping than material knowledge. Similarly, there was a quizzer who would score very well in a district and their first year internationals did not win a single jump. Well, I will sign up to coach that quizzer every single day because the path to scoring um, at internationals is like, to me, way more manageable, way more accessible and manageable as opposed to a quizzer who has really any accuracy below 60%. Um, to me, it almost... Like I'm painting in broad brushes that doesn't apply all, all, all the time, but it almost speaks to a quizzer who's fine with that level of accuracy and not just purely a quizzer who um, is fearless in jumping and hasn't figured out the level of necessary study yet. That's a very rare profile to me. It's more like a quizzer who just enjoys the, the competition and the particip participation and doesn't mind airing, but to me it's rare that they develop the fire for increasing that accuracy. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, with that, we are a bit over, so I should probably conclude here pretty quickly. I wanted to do a couple of announcements. The first one is that International Adult Quizzing League Meet Number 1 is coming up in just a handful of days. Uh, I think, what, five days or something from now? It's on Saturday, October 31st. It starts at 8 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Pacific uh, Daylight Time. And of course, if you aren't in the best time zone, you'll have to change that to whatever your time zone happens to be. Uh, I don't 
know the exact logistics of it, but I'm pretty sure they're, they're going to be operating on Slack somewhere. I don't know if they're going to be in the virtual meet channel or if they're going to be in the adult quizzing channel. But if you pop into one of those channels and ask some questions, I'm sure somebody will direct you to how you can view uh, as a spectator and cheer on uh, your favorite uh, quizzers from years past. It should be very exciting and very interesting. And for P&W District, I wanted to re-mention the fact that District Meet number two is coming up very soon. It is only six weeks away. It is on December 4th and 5th. And, you know, six weeks can seem like a long time, but it's really, really not this time of year because Thanksgiving is between now and then. And uh, so, yeah, six weeks may seem like a lot of time. It's going to go very quickly. So make sure you don't have a zero day. Study every day. Study at least a few verses every day. Uh, get yourself as uh, uh, prepared as you can for district meet number two. Uh, so, Scott, any other thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, I always viewed things that make it tougher to study as opportunities because it's tough on everyone else. And if you handle it better then relatively you move ahead. So, um, six weeks to the next district meet with Thanksgiving in between. Um, if you can just relatively do more than the average other quizzer, the average quizzer at, um, whatever competitive level you're at, then you should be able to move ahead of them. Yeah, absolutely. Great opportunity for those who, uh, take advantage of the obstacle. All right. Well, with that, I want to remind everybody that we very much like to hear from our listeners. If you have any disagreements with us in particular, we want to hear from you. Uh, but any kind of ideas in terms of questions or if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you are on Slack, and you should be, you can follow us, well, not follow us, you can engage us in near kind of almost real-time conversation in the inside-quizzing quizzing channel on Slack. And with that, I will say thank you to everybody for listening, and thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody.